Do you know Jesus Christ as Savior? Have you met the Jesus you need and not just the Jesus you want? When they drew near to Jerusalem to the Bethpage in Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it, bring it. If anyone says to you, hey, what are you doing? Say, well, the Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at the door outside the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing? Untying the colt. They told them what Jesus said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus, and they threw their cloaks on it and sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Now, Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart may uh, be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. We come to the last section of Mark's Gospel, and uh, we should note that the remaining six chapters cover just one week in the life of Jesus. Since the beginning of the year, we have actually um, covered... Uh, Ten chapters that have spanned the three years of his public ministry. So that gives you a little bit of an insight into what I have often said is the most important week in all of human history. The week between the entrance of Jesus into Jerusalem and his resurrection. So important that Mark uses six of 16 chapters to uh, tell us about it. In the first 10 chapters, as we have noted, Mark has provided the evidence necessary to prove that Jesus is, in fact, the Son of Man, the one that Daniel saw in his prophetic vision. Mark has used the title, Son of Man, to establish the deity of Jesus as one who has authority over everything, from physical disease to demonic powers and ultimately even death, as we have witnessed Jesus raising many from the dead during his public ministry. Along with the physical manifestations of his kingly authority, uh, we have seen Jesus as the Son of Man announce that he has authority to forgive sins and to call followers to work with him to establish God's kingdom here on earth. The followers of Jesus believed, however, that the establishing of the kingdom would come through the means that they were familiar with. That meant power gained by human means. That's the way the world operated. And that's what they believed would happen with their king. That uh, they would have a king, (coughs) excuse me, who would gain power through human means, even though Jesus had warned them uh, repeatedly to beware of the leaven of Pharisee and um, the leaven of Herod, uh, we can see the disciples 
reading the actions of Jesus as he comes into the city as what we might think of as a populist leader, a leader who appeals to the common man. Uh, We had a president recently whose popularity grew largely uh, because he appealed in his message to the common man. This is what Jesus did uh, in the view of of the people. Why else would he spend hours with ordinary people, people who are on the margins in a crowded room? Why would he do that? Why would he ensure that people didn't leave his outdoor rallies hungry, but instead that they would leave with a full stomach? If Jesus wasn't trying to appeal to the common man, why did he risk offending the religious and political elite? I mean, if Jesus wasn't building a grassroots following, people who would join the uprising that would ultimately dislodge Roman rule and return Israel to its former glory, why was Jesus doing anything at all? (coughs) This is how the disciples read the actions of Jesus and in many uh, ways how the people in general read the actions of Jesus. You know, I think there's probably some bottled water in the refrigerator. Mike, would you mind? Mike's been gone preaching all over the place, finally gets to sit with his wife, and now I apologize. It'll only take a minute, Allison. He'll be back. Unless he heads out the door on a preaching tour again. Um, <coughs> I don't know what happened, but all of a sudden, we don't have anything live up here, do we? Besides me, I think I'm still alive. <laughs> Thanks so much, Mike. I appreciate it. I mean, if the disciples had even begun to consider the rejection, suffering, and death that Jesus had been teaching them, and up to this point in, in Mark, there's no evidence that they had actually begun to consider it as being an actual thing that was going to happen, what, what does happen as Jesus enters the city would have been enough to, you know, cause the disciples to once again misinterpret the actions of Jesus, this, this massive group of people. And, and they, they were struggling to understand what Jesus meant anyway about the fact that he was going to go to Jerusalem to suffer, to die, to be delivered over to the Gentiles, <clears throat> those who would mock him, spit on him, flog him and kill him, and that after three days he would rise again. I mean, the misreading of the agenda of Jesus has to play into why they are so eager and enthusiastic to go into the village and do a donkey jacking. I mean, we all are familiar. It's a horrible thing, a carjacking. Many times people lose their lives. You just maybe saw the footage of a woman who was actually clinging to the hood of her car. Her car was being carjacked in New Mexico because her children are inside and she's clinging to the roof of her car, pleading with the man to stop. I don't want to make light of that. I'm not, of course, to think that uh, the disciples go into and they do, a, uh, in a sense, a donkey jacking. They just go and untie the donkey. And the people are like, hey, what are you doing? And all they have to say is what? Oh, the Lord has need of it. Don't tell me that Jesus wasn't a populist leader. I mean, after all, 
right? If you're anticipating Jesus to do something, you don't want to be known as the person that doesn't back his play, that doesn't back his move. And you don't want to be the person with the telemarketer on the phone that calls about your favorite political candidate asking for money. Oh, yeah, I'm not giving you any money. Of course, you know, that's what people do. They give money. They give donkeys. I mean, th this wins the game of one-upmanship. If you're with your pals and you go, hey, you know whose donkey Jesus was riding into the city today? He was riding my donkey. Well, why'd you give him your donkey? He didn't even have to ask. They came and got it, and I said, just take it away. It's fine. But it's only fine if he is going to do what you think he should be doing. The assumptions of Jesus doing what the population wanted him to do was why there was such enthusiasm. But what Mark is going to show us in these six chapters is the Jesus the world actually needed is not the Jesus that the world wanted. He is going to show us how the agenda of the people was crushed under the weight of their own expectations and demands which is, of course, a reason why people no longer go to church today. They were crushed under the weight of their own expectations and demands of what they thought Jesus should be about. I mean, that's the de definition of disappointment, right? That you bank all your hope in a certain outcome, and when you don't get that outcome, what are you? Disappointed. Disillusioned. And then you begin to disassociate. But Mark is not going to pull any punches as he tells the whole ugly story of the impact of evil on individual people, like Judas. <clears throat> Religious institutions like the temple and Pharisaical Judaism. Or political power like Herod and those even in Rome. And, and when it's all said and done, when these next six chapters are all said and done, what Mark is going to show us is the Jesus of Nazareth who rode into Jerusalem on the foal of the donkey is indeed Israel's Messiah. But in an even uh, greater way, he is the king who fulfills what Daniel had prophesied. And in case you've forgotten, because I know you have, we're going to read it right now. It's going to be up on the screen, Daniel 7. Read it with me. Behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. That all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. English, Turkish, you know, they, they don't speak Brazilian in Brazil. You know that, right? They speak Portuguese, Portuguese, Spanish, German, Bulgarian. The one that Todd forgot. Uh, Farsi. There you go. You've got to be careful with that one, Farsi. Um, all languages, all peoples, all nations. The king that the world didn't want was the king that they needed. And the king we need today. You know, when Mark's first readers are, are, are reading his gospel, or maybe they're hearing his gospel read for them, 
uh, what they were having to grapple with is a whole lot different than what we're having to grapple and wrestle with as well. You, you see, Mar what Mark's readers are, are experiencing at the time of this gospel being read and distributed uh, is exactly what Jesus said would happen within a generation of his departure, his ascension into heaven. And that is that Rome would come. They finally have had it with Israel and they would come, they would invade, they would destroy, they would tear down the temple, and Israel would be scattered. And all of that happened within a generation. And Jesus prophesied uh, here uh, in, in the temple, and we're going to get to this in just a, another week or so. He said that the tribulation that is coming has not been from the beginning uh, of the creation that God created until now and never will be. So great is the tribulation that was being experienced, even as Mark's readers read the entering, entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. You know, if the man who gave away his donkey is still alive, still around, he might think to himself, why'd they give my donkey away? The guy's a failure. I should have kept my donkey. Evil is invaded. Rome is running roughshod. We don't have any freedom. He, didn't, he wasn't the king after all what's going on? And there, he's disillusioned. He lost hope. I'm just saying, maybe if he was still around. The weight of expectation, the weight of demands, often lead to the loss of hope, often lead to disappointment. But, but as I said, what they were wrestling with when they first read it is a bit different than what we're wrestling with Today in the church, Western world, full of middle-class concerns that we constantly have to manage and, and, and work with. And, and I thought this was really uh, well summarized uh, in, a, uh, in a Facebook post by uh, the pastor just over the hill there in Argyle, Brian Fitzgerald. And he quoted uh, sociology professor Christian Smith. Christian Smith, professor both at North Carolina now at the University of Notre Dame. Uh, go fighting Irish. Uh, but uh, Christian Smith spent years studying the religious life of teenagers. And, and he concluded, and I quote, that most teenagers view God as a combination divine butler and cosmic therapist. In other words, God exists to help them through their problems and achieve what they desire. Smith said, Dr. Smith said, that those holding this view of God are primarily concerned with one's own happiness in contrast to focusing on glorifying God, learning obedience, and serving others. When asked why most teens view God as butler or therapist, Smith concluded that it was because most of their parents hold the same understanding of God. The leaven of the Pharisees, the leaven of Herod, the leaven of this evil age in which we live, the, the leaven of our own assumptions. In, in other words, hey, I'm not giving up my donkey if God doesn't deliver on my happiness. The Lord has need of something in my cupboard? Meh. I've been feeling blue lately, it hasn't shown up. Yeah, I'll, I'll risk forsaking the assembly of 
the, the, the brothers and sisters of Christ because God didn't do X over here. God shows up, I'll show up. Not given my tithe, he didn't do this over here. However you want to work it out, I'm just saying. We're not that far removed. Like the disciples, and like Israel who misread Jesus, we also still struggle with the problem of partial sight. So what's needed? How can we overcome the leavening influence of this present age? How can we get the scales off of our eyes and see the ascended Lord's Christ, the one that Daniel foresaw, the one who entered into the city of Jerusalem, the one who was exalted, ascended today, seated at the right hand of God, how can we see him with greater clarity? Well, you know, rarely is there just one answer or just one moment that solves these kinds of problems. And what we have to, to, to grasp again is what it's going to require of us is that there will be many answers in many moments that eventually then remove the scales from our eyes and get our hearts in the right place. For Jesus said, where you're treasure is after all that's where your heart's going to be found for some time now i've been saying that the way most christians practice their discipleship simply is not adequate for the time in which we currently find ourselves the force of evil that presses against us is indeed powerful and our practices do not always lead us uh, by faith into the one, into relationship with the one who uh, is in us, the one who is greater uh, than the one that is in the world. And I thought on the research by Christian Smith, and it, and it really helped me to kind of flesh out some questions that maybe we need to grapple with as a church on this second Sunday of July, on a beautiful July Sunday morning. And we're going to put them up on the screen. First of all, do, do your discipleship practices simply affirm you? Or do they go deep and shine the light on who Jesus is, the King of glory? Do our discipleship practices, right, simply affirm us for who we think we are? Or do those practices go much deeper into our lives, shining the light on the Lord Jesus, the King of glory? Do those practices, and secondly, challenge our agendas? Or do they empower us to take up the agenda of Jesus? You know, I, I've been a Christian for a long, long time, and very often I, I find myself, you know, in discipleship practices that only are about my own agenda. But what our collective practices need to do is to kind of crush our own agenda, lift up the agenda of Jesus, empower the agenda of Jesus in one another's lives so that we're actually doing what Jesus wants us to do. Do our discipleship practices confront the leaven of our lives? Or do they only feed the idea that, that God really is nothing more than a divine butler or our cosmic therapist who had better show up on demand? Do our discipleship practices crush our assumptions? 
Do they crush the assumptions of who we think Jesus is and what we want Jesus to do? Do we, do we want the Jesus we want? Or do we want the Jesus we really need in our lives? Well, the gift the church offers to us today is not simply a one-way ticket to a faraway place called heaven. Instead, it is an offer and an invitation to go with Jesus to Jerusalem, to meet Jesus outside the city where he suffered a death so humiliating that it can only be described as being God-forsaken. And then in response to what Jesus has done, we lay down our agendas at the foot of his cross. We plead with him for mercy as we turn from our sins and once again find every day the salvation that he has won for us. And as we find that day by day when we gather together on a Sunday, then we can join the, the great throng of worshipers in heaven and on earth from nations and tribes and languages who are saying, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Our hearts will be ready to do that. That's the gift we offer today. But this gift we offer points us beyond this present age and into the hope of the age to come with Jesus. For the one who died and rose again is the same one who rules and reigns from on high. The same Jesus that rode into Jerusalem that day is the same Jesus who is coming again. And when he comes again, he comes to judge the living and the dead. And as that judgment is poured out, he reveals then in all of its fullness the kingdom of God. And we are welcomed into that kingdom, a kingdom that will have no end. Brothers and sisters, just as Jesus approached Jerusalem with his disciples here in Mark 11, the time for his return, the time for him to come again is approaching as well. And I have to ask you, please listen carefully. Please consider this question with great care. Are you ready for his coming? Not in the way you think you ought to be ready, but in the way he has told us we ought to be ready as we read from 1 Timothy, the way that Paul wasn't ready until he, meet, he met Jesus on the road to Damascus and he understood who Jesus actually was and for the very first time understood what it all meant and brought by faith into this glorious salvation. Have you turned from your sins? Do you believe the good news concerning Jesus? You see, if you've done that and if you do that on an ongoing basis, then you know what? You, you follow the example of the man who, who gives up his donkey you know, to the disciples for only one reason. The Lord needs it. The Lord needs it. And, and when the Lord comes through a spirit and his word and, and, and a church says, hey, I need something, you give it up. You say, sure, the Lord needs it. I want to be on the side of the king. Yeah, I'm coming to your house this week. I need some things. I'm, yeah, I need that. You know? No, I won't do that. Uh, I say that's what the Lord does, right? That's what the Lord does. If you have never come, though, into a relationship of saving faith with Jesus, then let this be the day of salvation. Let this be the day that you begin to understand truly what it means. Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest.
Amen. Father, we thank you for your word to us this morning. We pray, O oh God, that your grace might be poured out in it and through it, and that we might, O oh Lord, by your mercy be ready, for your return is coming soon. And if any, O oh Lord, are unsure that they indeed are a Christian, may they find me or someone afterwards to talk about what it means to be truly born again by your grace. In Jesus' good name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Ken Prater of Durkeytown Baptist Church in Fort Edward, New York. You may freely copy and distribute this message, but please do so at no charge and without altering the contents in any way. For more information about Durkeytown, please visit our website at www.durkeytown.org.